I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hello, hello there, John. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing well. It's July, but not really July. It's actually June. We just opened Greece uh, the other day at Fort Salem Theater, and it was exceptionally well received. And so I'm I'm doing I'm doing well right now. Not going to complain at all. That's great. I'm so glad to hear it. Uh, normally we record in the evening. I'm realizing it is, and it is it is the morning. It, it is, is the morning, and my coffee has not quite me yet so hopefully at some point during this recording i'll pep up because we're talking about a fantastic show today john john what are we talking about today we are talking about the 1945 mega hit carousel with music by richard rogers book and lyrics by oscar hammerstein ii based on the play lilium by frank molnar Carousel opened at the Majestic Theater on April 19th, 1945, and closed on May 24th, 1947, after playing for 890 performances. The show was directed by Ruben Mamoulian, choreographed by Agnes DeMille, with music direction by Joseph Letau. The original Broadway cast included Jan Clayton as Julie Jordan, Jean Darling as Carrie Pipperidge, John Raitt as Billy Bigelow. Eric Matson as Enoch Snow, Jean Casto as Mrs. Mullen, Mervyn Vi as Jigger Cragen, Bambi Lynn as Louise, and Russell Collins as the Starkeeper and Dr. Selden. Carousel was created before the Tony Awards were established, but the show has been revived on Broadway several times, most recently in 2018, where it received 11 Tony nominations and won two. Uh, The 1994 revival won all five of the Tony Awards it was nominated for, including Best Revival of a Musical. In 1870s Maine, two young mill workers, Julie Jordan and Carrie Pipperidge, visit the town's carousel after work, where Julie attracts the attention of the carousel's barker, Billy Bigelow. Mrs. Mullen, the widowed owner of the carousel, doesn't like people drawing Billy's eye, and she tells Julie never to come back. Billy mocks Mrs. Mullen for her jealousy. She responds by firing Billy. Billy invites Julie to go get a drink, which she agrees to. Billy leaves to collect his things. Carrie presses Julie about her feelings and reveals that she's seeing someone herself, Enoch Snow, a fisherman. Billy returns and he and Julie head out, but Carrie warns Julie not to stay out too late or she'll lose her job. As Billy and Julie are out, they run into Mr. Bascombe, Julie's boss, and a policeman. The cop offers to escort Julie home, but she refuses, wanting to stay out with Billy. Mr. Bascombe responds by firing Julie. Left alone, the two talk about what their lives would be if they loved each other, but they don't. No, they don't. A month passes. June is busting out all over. The town is preparing for the summer clam bake. Julie and Billy are now married, living with Julie's cousin. Julie confides in Carrie, sharing that Billy is frustrated by being unemployed and that he has hit her. Carrie responds, as all supportive friends do, by sharing that she and Enoch are engaged. 
Billy arrives with his whaler friend, Jigger Cragen. Billy is rude and quickly leaves again with Jigger. Julie chases after him. Left alone, Enoch and Carrie discuss their future and the wealth and children they plan to amass. Jigger attempts to recruit Billy to his gang of whalers as they plan to rob Mr. Bascombe. Billy declines their offer when he learns that they are okay with killing Mr. Bascombe if they have to. Mrs. Mullen arrives and tries to lure Billy back to the carousel and to her. Billy considers this, knowing that he'd have to leave Julie to return to his work as a barker. No one is interested in a married barker, obviously. As Billy is considering leaving Julie, Julie arrives and reveals that she is pregnant. This ends any thought of abandoning Julie, and Billy imagines what it will be like to have a son or a daughter. Determined to be able to provide for his child, Billy decides to join Jigger and his gang in their robbery. As the whole town heads out for the clam bake, Billy agrees to go with Julie to her delight. Little does she know that this is merely Billy's attempt to create an alibi for the crime he is now committed to. After the clam bake, the whole town is reveling in the joy of a good meal. Jigger hits on Carrie. Enoch witnesses this and declares that he is done with Carrie. Jigger mocks them both. Julie tries to comfort Carrie, confident that it will be okay because Carrie loves Enoch, and that's all that matters. Billy attempts to sneak off with Jigger, but Julie notices him and attempts to stop him. While the two talk, she realizes that Billy has a knife on him. She begs Billy to give her the knife, but he refuses and leaves. While the gang waits for the right moment to commit the robbery, they gamble, betting their share of the wealth that they soon think they'll have, totally unaware that Mr. Bascombe has already deposited the mill's money. The robbery is a failure. Mr. Bascombe pulls a gun on Billy while Jigger flees. Billy stabs himself with his knife. Julie arrives just in time to tell Billy that she loves him as he dies. Carrie and Enoch arrive, reunited by the crisis that they bore no witness to, and attempt to console Julie, and Nettie tells her that she'll never walk alone. Cut to up there, where Billy's spirit is meeting with the Starkeeper, a heavenly official. The Starkeeper tells Billy that the good he did in life was not enough to get him into heaven, but as long as there is someone alive who remembers him, he can return to the earth for one day to try and do enough good to redeem himself. Fifteen years have passed since Billy died, and his daughter, Louise, has grown up lonely and bitter, ostracized by the other children because of her father's actions. Billy is anxious to return to Earth to help his daughter, and he steals a star to bring to Louise, which the starkeeper pretends not to notice. At Julie's cottage, Carrie is describing her recent visit to New York, where she saw her now very wealthy husband. Enoch and their army of children enter to fetch Carrie to prepare for the upcoming graduation. Enoch Jr. lingers behind to talk to Louise. Billy and the heavenly friend, who is escorting him, enter the scene, invisible to everyone else, and watch as Louise tells Enoch Jr. she's planning to run away and join an acting troupe. Enoch Jr. says he'll stop her by marrying her, or he would if his father didn't disapprove of her as a match. 
their conversation quickly dissolves into insults and Louise orders Enoch Jr. to leave. Billy then reveals himself to the crying Louise, pretending to be a friend of her father's. He offers her the gift of the star he stole, but she refuses it. Frustrated by his daughter, Billy slaps her hand and then makes himself invisible. Julie enters and Louise tells her what has happened. She says that the slap felt more like a kiss than a blow, and Julie understands her perfectly. Julie notices the star that Billy dropped, picks it up, and seems to feel Billy's presence. Still invisible, Billy attends Luis's graduation, still looking for a chance to redeem himself. The town's physician, Dr. Selden, speaks to the graduation class. He tells them not to rely on their parents' successes or turning to Louise, to be held back by their parents' failures. Dr. Selden leads the graduates in a reprise of You'll Never Walk Alone. And as they sing, Billy whispers to Louise, telling her to believe in Dr. Selden's words. Louise reaches out to one of her classmates and begins to realize she does not have to be an outcast. Billy then goes to Julie and at last tells her that he loves her. As Julie and Louise join the crowd in the singing, Billy is redeemed and is taken to heaven. This is an interesting show. And, and before we get into discussion, it's it's funny because I have a, a history with this show. It, it's, a, it's a common thing when you're working on shows or your friend circle and your theater people, the, the inevitable question comes up, hey, what's your favorite show? And... My response is always, it's complicated. (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, that was, that was a secret. I told you in secret, John, but. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, it's all, it's okay. Um, And it's complicated, but I'm not saying that Carousel is my favorite show, but Carousel is actually one of my first shows that I absolutely fell in love with. I worked on the show very young like in high school I was probably a sophomore or a junior in high school my first experience with it where I assistant conducted it I played in the orchestra and I fell in love with it then and ever since then it's kind of been a companion to me it's been I've it's always been on the list of shows that I constantly listen to it's a, a show that I would love the opportunity to do myself fully one day. While not my favorite show, I I definitely have a soft spot for this one. That being said, there are problems. Yeah, I mean, there, there are no excuses for it, but the main character, Billy, is is, well... One of the two main characters, Billy, is far from a good person. In fact, you you were saying before we even started recording that he's not even an, an anti-hero. He's just like a majorly flawed and bad individual. He is. And I mean, you see it throughout the show. He, he 
often says that he wants to do his best. He wants to make things right. He wants to be there and provide for his son. And in, in the soliloquy in the end of the first act, he's, you know, bragging on his son about how he can be better than him and that he doesn't have to be a carousel barker. He can be successful. He can, he can even be president. And then, you know, the thought turns to, well, but what if it's, what if it's a girl? And he's crestfallen for a second because it's, in in story world it's the 1800s and guys wanted sons um not commenting on that other than whatever that's the world the story presents and so it is what it is um but he quickly turns around and is like no this this could be wonderful too and then he just continues making bad decisions. Then it's, okay, well, I need to provide for them. So I'm going to turn to a life of crime. I need to do this. I need to do that. And then when he finally reaches the consequences of his actions, he takes the coward's way out. There's, there's, no, there's no sugarcoating it. Jigger escapes. He's being held at gunpoint by the ship's captain. He's being, the, the police are there. And he decides to abandon everyone and he kills himself. Yet another bad decision he makes. He goes to the mother of Pearl Gates, which is actually a little funny thing. It, it's a little throwaway joke in the show. Um, when he when Billy's taken to heaven, he's actually not taken to the pearly gates because the pearly gates are only for people who deserve to be there right off the bat. So he's actually taken to the mother of Pearl Gates, which is for the people who are more on the fence, so to speak. And he demands the opportunity to make it right. He demands to go before God and, and, and plead his case. And eventually he gets this, you know, this idea that, okay, well, you can go back for a day and try and make it right. Which then through his own decisions, he screws up again. Ultimately, you know, you, you talked about Billy being a main character and it's, it's interesting to me because he's, he's a protagonist in the most literal sense of the term. The story is about him and Julie and their interactions and how they come together and how they come up, how they, they separate. Billy is not a protagonist in the, in the literal sense, literary sense of the term. He is not a hero. He is not an anti-hero. To me, Billy ultimately is the catalyst for Julie. Julie is the protagonist of this show. Julie is the hero of this show. And it's ultimately through Julie's strength that the ending has meaning for me. I, I, I think that's that's absolutely correct. I just, I, I, I don't want to dive into this too much, but I also don't want to make sure that we don't acknowledge it. Like a big portion of the linking material of this story is the fact that Billy beats Julie. And then when he comes back, he hits his daughter. And there's no excuses for this. It's not okay. It's not acceptable behavior. And it is still a very real problem today. But that is also a fundamental part of who that character is. And I think it, it's, I don't want to give Rogers and Hammerstein credit for, for this, because I think that was, well, A, it's part of the original play, but it's also just sort of a reality that they lived in. And I don't 
necessarily think they wrote this show with those actions in an attempt to make a social commentary. But I think that if you are going to do this show today, you have to use it in such a way as to do so. Because there's no redemption of Billy if you don't own all of his flaws. And to my mind, that's his biggest. Absolutely. And when I call Billy a catalyst, I think that's a very large part of it. It shows, it it provides a source of conflict for, and I don't want to understate this, but it shows the true character of Julie. It shows that she is better than him. It shows that even with all of the crap he is throwing her way. She is stronger. She's better than him. She raises Louise by herself on her own. She does not revert or submit to things that he does. She's better than that. That's why she's the hero. And that I think is ultimately a, needs to be a valid reading of this show that Billy is not a good guy. It's about Julie and Julie's revealing that she is a good person, the good person of this show. I think all of that is correct. I think we needed to say it. And I think we just need to make sure that everyone knows that as you're stepping into this show, it should make you uncomfortable. And if you're going to produce this show, don't back away from that because that's kind of the point. But If you do decide to produce this show, as you're dealing with these societal issues, you get to do it with some truly unbelievable music. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. And when I talked about earlier about how I fell in love with the show, I fell in love with this show because of the music. I would probably make the not probably I'm going to I'm not going to couch it in weasel words I would make the argument that not only is this Rogers and Hammerstein's best show that this is possibly the best composed show of the golden age that the music is sublime it's beautiful it's it's heartbreaking it's it's gut-wrenching but this for me is the pinnacle of the golden age musical from the very first note of the prologue to the very end of the finale and i want to argue with you because i love being a dick but (laughs) i can't like you're not wrong I mean, and let's 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 so let's get into the weeds here a little bit with the music. We start out with a prologue, which normally would be the overture. Some some shows call it a prologue, some shows call it an overture, but it's usually the same thing. It is a medley of tunes that are coming up in the show. There's that very famous meme line from The Office um, when they're going to see Andy play in Sweeney Todd. And and Daryl turns to someone and says, Shh, I'm listening to the overture. I need to hear these tunes now so that I can recognize them later, which is also very funny because you know what Sweeney Todd does not have an overture. <laughs> anyway, so this show has a prelude, but it's it's not an overture. It is the opening scene to the show. It's done completely without dialogue. Um, and it 
actually is expositional in process. It introduces us to Billy Bigelow as the carousel barker and introduces us to Mrs. Mullen, who is the, the carousel owner. Um, we see Carrie for the first time. We see Enoch for the first time. And it it really introduces these characters without a single snippet of dialogue. It is purely about setting the scene in a musical and visual way. And it does it by using tunes that are not used elsewhere in the show. It is a completely original piece. Okay, no, I re- let me rephrase that. It is also used elsewhere in the show, but it's used to almost recreate the prologue when we get to the dream ballet. It is, it's used there, but it's used for the same dramatic effect. But these are tunes not used in later songs. I, I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> I, and I, it's just, I mean, you right out the gate, you're hit with amazing music and it's just going to get better from there. And then we get to the bench scene, which is the second. I mean, it, I, I feel like it, well, it technically it's this, if we're counting the prologue is scene one, it is part of scene two. So Carrie has gone off with Julie and they're walking down the river and then Billy shows up and Carrie goes away and you have very possibly the 15 minute perfect scene in musical theater. It is this effortless blending of dialogue and music, all of its under and it's actually fantastic because from an orchestral perspective, it actually starts as underscoring that underscoring actually then weaves us into a song. The song then weaves us back into underscoring, which then weaves us into a reprise of that same song. It's all seamless with dialogue. And I mean, Character-wise, it establishes both Julie and Billy. And I mean, and If I Loved You is probably top five for me. Top 10. No, we'll go top five. Top five Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, songs for me. And it's just the perfect 15 minutes of theater. We, We should clarify that If I Love You is contained within this little scene. But what, I mean... It, it, it is perfect, and it's it's going too far, historically speaking, to say that this is a new idea, but it is a relatively unfamiliar idea at its time for Broadway musical theater, mm-hmm. and it it just it takes the scope of what is possible to do in the Broadway stage and expands it dramatically in being able to have underscoring in a scene that is seamlessly integrated to dialogue without having to stop and start a song start a number and then end the song and go back into dialogue it's very very clunky it feels very old-fashioned now because most of the shows that are written now are almost either through sung or just through composed so that there is no stopping but in 1945 that was far from the case so this is opening a new door to the the musical theater world and their musical vernacular and to open that door with a piece that is just so freaking good i mean it it, it's 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 kind of incredible it is and you know it's 
it's an interesting dichotomy because I've I've read sources, I have I've t- had conversations with people that Carousel seems to be in some people's mind this blending of theater and opera. And the the funny thing is is I don't I don't necessarily follow that. And I'll admit I my opinion is colored somewhat historically because later on we do get things that are intended to be this blending of theater and opera. Um, some would argue Jesus Christ Superstar being a rock opera. Same thing with Phantom of the Opera. We're not going to get into that because I think that's wrong. But more recently, we've talked about shows like Candide, which are this concept of a blending of musical theater and opera. I think this was just Richard Rogers deciding that this through composed idea is the way to do this scene. I also do find it interesting. This is not necessarily something they followed up with. There are scenes like this in other shows, but this is the only thing I can think of the major Rodgers and Hammerstein shows where they did something like this. And maybe that's why it stands out to me is because it is so unique and exceptional. It is. And it, it, I I think that's also part of why this is, arguably one of their best shows because they they were just I don't know what it was about this material but for them it 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 resonated in such a way that enabled them to figure out how to elevate their dramatic storytelling to a whole nother level like I love Rodgers and Hammerstein I'm not saying that to be critical of their other works but you know I think back to South Pacific which is a great show and a well-constructed show that has a lot of wonderful music in it. But the ending, and listeners will remember how much I hate the ending of that show because there's just sort of like an asinine reprise of a song that they did because they needed to reprise a song. And it doesn't really make, you have to work very, very hard to make it make dramatical sense. And Carousel is just constructed so much better like you 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 shouldn't you you have to work to mess up telling this story right and it's interesting because it does use those same building blocks if we're going to use south pacific as an example i mean carousel does the same thing you'll never the the finale of you'll never walk alone is a reprise of a song that came earlier but it makes sense it no it does and actually it's i don't want to call it a subversion but I think transformation would be a better uh, a better term. So the first time we hear you'll never walk alone, we are on the docks in front of the boat. Billy is laying there in Julie's arms, dying. He dies. She is sitting there with his dead body in his arms. And Nettie comes up behind her and sings this. It's it's very simple. It's 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 very hymn-like. It's and it's it's one of those. In that moment, it is in your deepest sorrow, we will be there for you. In your hardest moments, we will be standing beside you. Know, know that we will be there. There's a transformation of that at the end, though, where it becomes about, I mean, and maybe, maybe I'm misreading this, but to this, to me, the finale has always been about that moment of connection between Julie and Louise, that moment where Louise realizes that she doesn't, it, she isn't necessarily as much of an outsider as she in her mind is, and that in Julie, 
she's not as alone as she may feel because they have each other. It becomes changed from the idea of in your darkest hour, we will be with you in your hardest moments. We will be beside you too. We have each other and we won't walk alone because the mother and the daughter are together and that in the two the two of them in that moment and beyond can handle what they have they whatever is thrown at them because they already have and so i think for me it that transformation is what makes this this building block work whereas with south pacific as wonderful as honey bun is as a song it's literally like, well, we got in the show and we're going to use it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a gimmick song when it first appears. And then you have to you have to take a gimmick song and try and make it a compelling we're off to war song. It doesn't, and it doesn't work. We, yeah. we don't need to rehash that. That's not Yeah, I was going to say, we've, we've, we've litigated that pretty severely. I mean, ultimately, the success of care, they take a song called Blow High, Blow Low that is a song for a bunch of whalers that is just filled with what we would recognize now as double entendres and makes it not absurd it makes it straightforward and simple and i mean like you couldn't write that song today because people would be reading into it so much with double double meanings and entendres and everything like you couldn't do it and they did it and they did it and it and it's straightforward and it's silly and it's fun but you don't you don't take it at anything but face value. So what recording are we going to recommend for people who haven't heard Carousel before? This is hard. This is it's, really, it is hard because here's really the thing. Hard. We we like to recommend original Broadway recordings because we like to be old fashioned. But I have to say, as we have discussed, the best part of the show is the bench scene. And while If I Love You is in the original Broadway recording, you don't get the whole nope. bench scene in the original Broadway recording. So there are a couple. I I mean, I am still going to recommend the original Broadway recording because it is still a good representation of this show. I'm going to go a step further and also say that there is a movie version from the 1950s, I believe, with a very, very young Shirley Jones as Julie that I would also recommend just more for its historical value. It's, it's not a, it's not a complete representation of the show. And matter of fact, the movie does change a couple of events, leaves a couple songs out, but it's actually an enjoyable recording to listen to. The three I am going to re- recommend though, is three? You, there are three. Yeah. There are three. You get that to I'll pick recommend. one. Nope, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about all three, and you're gonna just deal with it. Though to be fair, two of them are almost exactly the same. So there is the 1993 West End production that, as far as I know, is not only the first recording to have the complete bench scene, but it is also the first recording to have the complete ballet. With in okay, Act I'll two. interject here to say that if I had to pick one to recommend, that's the one that I would pick. <laughs> Then there's the 1994 Broadway revival, which we actually talked about in uh, in our background information, which actually is wasn't necessarily a direct transfer from the UK, but it's pretty much the same production. It does have the complete bench scene. It does not have the complete ballet. So there, there is a problem there. Lastly, 
and and I've got to recommend it just because of just how beautiful it was done. The 2018 Lincoln Center recording is the the newest one is also absolutely beautiful to listen to. Has the complete ballet, has the complete bench scene. But okay, if you're going to hold my hands to the fire, you need to listen to the West End recording because it is hands down the most complete, but also most sincere and beautiful rendition of this show. There you go. 1993 West End Carousel. Go check it out. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.